0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning, beginning in verse 35. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Thank you, Elijah and Jonathan, for leading us this morning. And uh, You picked one of my wife's favorite hymns. Uh, she thinks every Sunday morning would be okay, as long as we had great as I faithfulness in there somewhere, it would be okay. Um, and I have to agree with her, it's an excellent Wonderful hymn, um, and as we're finding our place in uh, Luke chapter twelve, I kind of want to talk about great as I faithfulness for a moment, thinking about the uh, the nature of the last three sermons that we have heard in Luke twelve, leading up to the one this morning. Um, our passage this morning seems like we're breaking into a uh, a conversation that's already started, but we've been hearing the beginning parts of it for the last three weeks. And uh, as we've studied through the fear of God over the fear of man and the uh, learning how to be rich toward God rather than being greedy and rich in the world. And then the the last week um, was trusting in, in God and, and, the, and seeking after the kingdom of heaven rather than the things of the world that, that bring up the anxiousness inside of us. I can't help but think, great is His faithfulness toward us that helps us through all of those things. Without the faithfulness of the Lord and His grace and His mercy, we would be so wrapped up in all of those things that we would never be able to to see clearly and, and to hear from from His Word. And so I, I'm thankful to God for His faithfulness, thankful uh, for His His mercy and His grace that He helps us to to have. Um, his eyes and, and his ears and to see things the way that we should. Um, the sermon this morning, as you, if you see the, the title, it says, The Watchful Servant and the Sudden Return of Christ. Even though that, that's the title of it, I want you to, to know that this is not a sermon on the end times. This is a sermon about the return of Christ and how that should make us live differently here in the present. And so, in, even though it does talk about the sudden return of Christ, how should we live in light of that? How should we live looking for the sudden return of Christ? Um, let me read our passage for us, and then I'm going to pray, and, and we will get started. In Luke 12, beginning in verse 35, the Word of God says this, "'Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning.'" that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not um, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Every one to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let's pray. God, I pray that your word would be faithfully opened this morning and that the study that that I have done would would bear fruitful and that I would be clear because your word is clear and that I would be able to um, use your words and your boldness this morning. And I pray that we would humbly submit to your word from the the preacher all the way down to the the person in in the pew. And God, I pray that we would we would exalt you and give you glory through the hearing of, of this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the, the first part that, that I want to look at today is the command to be watchful. Jesus comes, as I said, in speaking to his disciples, it seems like right out of the gate with a command. However, we cannot read this passage alone. It needs to be in line with the, the three sermons that we've already heard. After speaking to us of the fear of God over the fear of man, being rich toward God rather than greedy for gain, and finding your treasure in heaven rather than worrying over your life on earth, he tells us to be watchful. And he does that by saying two things. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. He means gird up your robe and and tuck it in your belt. Let nothing hinder your ability to work and to serve. Like having on a, a long bathrobe and... You know, keeping it tight, make sure everything is is close to you don't don't let anything hang out like your don't let your robe hang loose like a cook who ties an apron around their waist, holding back their clothing and making them able to freely move around the kitchen without the fear of loose clothing hanging over the burner. that would not be good, like a professional who swim swimmer who puts on the the racing cap to keep their hair in place so that as, as much as that doesn't seem like that helps to me, it does help them. It slows, makes sure their hair doesn't slow them down in the water. Or like when I was a kid, and my brother may remember this, when I was a kid and I would love to race people on the, on the playground, and I would tie my shoes and then shove my shoelaces down in my shoe like I thought that would help me or something. Um, it didn't help me, but that's the idea that, that we're getting at here. Tie up your loose ends. Tuck your shoelaces down in your shoes. Let nothing hinder you. Keep everything tight so that you're able to work and to serve freely without any hindrance. Stay dressed for action. Don't put on your your pajamas, so to speak. Keep your work clothes on. Be ready. It also says keep your lamps burning. And nowadays, we don't, you know, have oil lamps in our house. We don't Turn them on at night and have to refill the oil container inside. In fact, I've never done that, and so I don't really know how that works, so I can't really tell you that. Um, But we can look at Matthew 25, uh, beginning in verse 1 through 13. So hold your place in Luke and turn to Matthew 25. And here's another parable that is very similar to the one that we're reading here right now, where there were a parable of 10 virgins. Five were wise, and five were unwise. Let's read this. 25 Matthew 25 beginning in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. 5 of them were foolish and 5 were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed they all became drowsy and slept. and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The foolish did not take oil with them, and when they trimmed their lamps to make sure that there was that it was going to burn right, it's like a candle when, when the wick starts to burn down and get really fat sometimes you can knock off that part that's burnt and it'll glow bright again same way with those lamps if they would trim off that black part the part that's burned up it would glow bright but there was only enough in the wick there was only oil left for that so it only burned for a moment and then they're like oh no we need more oil but they had none they took no oil with them but the, why, the five that had done wisely, they took extra oil with them, but not to share, but to make sure that when they went out to meet the bridegroom in the dark, they had enough oil to light the way back to the marriage feast. They were not being hateful or rude to the foolish ones who had brought no oil. They were being practical. If I give you my oil, I will not have enough myself, and I will not be able to light the way for the master. They were prepared, they had what they needed. So that they could keep their lamps burning. And this is what the Lord is saying here in our passage. Stay dressed. Keep your lamps burning. Be prepared. And in our passage, the servants aren't going out to meet the master with handheld lamps. Rather, they're keeping the light on in the home. They're keeping it prepared. The house prepared. Making sure everything is ready for when the master arrives. And they are doing these things so that they may open to him immediately when he arrives. And when he knocks at the door. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, Those servants who stay dressed for action, who keep their lamps burning, those servants are blessed. First off, these servants didn't decide, well, the master hasn't returned and it's late, so I should probably blow out the lamps, close up the house for the night. I can be frugal, I'll save our oil. You know, he's not here, so he must not be coming. Besides, I'm sleepy and I need the rest. No, these these servants knew what the master expected. They stayed prepared. And they kept the house, house in full working order. And Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom that master finds awake when he returns. And he doesn't mean just awake, but he means even more than that. He means alert. For some of you, this would be the difference between your alarm going off in the morning and your first cup of coffee. You may be awake when that alarm goes off, but you're not alert till you have that coffee. Um, the same word is used in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Watchful is the word. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In this passage, being watchful is very clearly saying, be alert. There's a lion out there that is seeking to devour you. And just being watchful isn't enough. You have to be ready for that lion. You have to have a plan of escape. You have to have a a route to run to get away from him. You have to be prepared. And that's what he's saying. Don't just be awake. Awake doesn't mean just not asleep. Awake means alert. The servant is constantly prepared and alert to every sound at the door that could be the master returning. If you have kids, you might understand this idea. Have you ever told your child that somebody's coming over that day? And that person, you know in your mind, that person's coming at like 4 p.m., but it's 8 a.m., and your child doesn't understand that time gap. So your child, like mine, does. If we make that mistake and tell her that somebody's coming, are they here yet? Are they here yet? Like every five minutes for hours until they get there. And you commit to yourself, I'm never going to tell my kids so long in advance that somebody's coming. Because all my daughter wants to do is run to the window and look and wait and look at the driveway. I don't see anybody yet. Are they here? And it's like, well, do you see anybody? Are they here? She's constantly doing that. And the servant is similar to this, but he's not exactly like this. The servant is alert, waiting, hearing something, thinking it may be the master. But this servant is also preparing the house. This servant doesn't run to the window and just stand there and and become useless, waiting and waiting and waiting. This servant is, is useful. They're preparing the house. It'd be like in my house. If somebody's coming, you're vacuuming, you're, you may be mopping, you're cleaning the kitchen up, you're putting away all the toys and telling Knox not to pull them out as soon as you put them away. You're, you're keeping the house prepared. And that's what that servant is doing. He's not useless staring out the window waiting for somebody to come, he's busy but still alert. And the question is how will they be blessed? And how does, what does Jesus say will happen to those servants who are found still awake and still, still working? He says, um, let me find it, in verse 37, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself, meaning the master will dress himself for service, and have them, the servants, recline at table. And he will come and he will serve them. So this is not Normal. We expect that the servants are working and preparing so when the master comes, they can serve him. They can have him sit down because he's probably tired, he's probably worn out, maybe even hungry. They can prepare and give him the things that he needs. But Jesus explains a different different, uh, set of events. The master is not the one who will dress himself and serve the servants in the normal etiquette. But according to Jesus, the servants here are blessed because the master does not follow that. It will be for the servants, it will be as if the master, instead of sitting down at the table himself, should place his servants there. When he comes, he says, no, you sit, and he will dress himself, and he will serve them. If we survey the gospels and the life of Christ, we see that this is actually his normal procedure. Write some of these down. Philippians 2, it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mark 10:45. for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke twenty two twenty seven. Jesus says this, For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I, meaning Jesus, I am among you as the one who serves. And then hold your place in Luke and turn to John 13. I want us to actually follow along with this one. John 13, we're going to read the first five verses. This is one of the greatest examples of Jesus actually serving the servants. John 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, doesn't just wash the hands of of those that are there. He washes the dirtiest part of those people. They had been, they probably had sandals and were walking around on the streets that were not paved like our streets are. They're dirty. They have live animals that walk those streets. So you can get the idea of what they might be stepping in or stepping around. There's all kinds of junk all over their feet. And Jesus ties a towel around his waist, pours water in the basin and kneels down and washes their feet i i can't imagine doing that i'm a little disgusted by feet at times but feet that are disgusting like that like jesus just kneeling down and he was the one that should have been sitting there and they should have been washing his feet they should have been serving him like that but jesus who is the master himself became the servant Turn back to Luke chapter 12. We continue on in this section. He says that if he comes in verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So I was studying and looking up what the watches were, and in the Roman culture, they had four night watches, and in the Jewish, they had three. But I found a a helpful little passage from a man named Alfred Edersheim, who is much smarter on the Jewish culture and things like that than I am. And so I wanted to read what he said about the night watches. He said, By day and night, it was the duty of the Levites to keep guard at the gates to prevent, so far as possible, the unclean from entering the temple. To them, the duties of the temple police were also entrusted under the command of an official known to us in the New Testament as the captain of the temple. But in the writings, chiefly, as the man of the tes- of the Temple Mount. The office must have been of considerable responsibility considering the multitude on feast days. There was lots of people there. Their keen national susceptibilities and the close proximity of the hated Romans in Fort Antonia. At night, guards were placed in 24 stations about the gates and the courts. And of these, 21 were occupied by Levites alone. The other, innermost three, Jointly by priests and levites, and each guard consisted of ten men, so that in all two hundred and forty priests and levites were on duty every night. And the temple guards were relieved by day, but not during the night, which the romans divided into four, as I said, but the Jews into three. And hence it says, and he talks about this, this specific passage, when the Lord says, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching, he expressly refers to the second and third watches as those of deepest sleep. Um, I don't know, I don't really know what really deep sleep is because I have a two-month-old and it's been a while since I've had deep sleep. But you can picture this idea as this is the darkest part of the night. This is after you've been sleeping for a long time. And if you're sitting there watching and trying to stay awake in the dark part of the night, it's probably a struggle to, to stay awake. You probably have to, to do something to remain awake. And he's, he's emphasizing here that even in the hardest part of the night, these servants are found still watching. These servants are still awake, working the house and keeping it prepared for the master to return. So he he goes to the extreme even if it's in the darkest part of the night when you're struggling the hardest to stay awake. Those servants are blessed because they're still awake. Um and then he gives us a second parable to illustrate the first one. He says in verse 39, "But you know but know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into." So he uses the the housebreaking parable to illustrate the parable of the watchful servants. And an interesting word in this section is uh, the word for thief. It's actually a Greek word called kleptase, which sounds very similar to one that we know, klepto or kleptomaniac, which literally means somebody has the irresistible impulse to steal. And so he says, if if the master had known at what hour the klepto was coming, he would have stayed awake to guard and to protect his house. And I don't think I ever realized that, what the, the nature of that protection was like until I got married. And then it just got worse as I had a kid, and then it got even stronger as I had a second child. The, the desire to protect your house, if you know that there's danger lurking, you're not sleeping. You're going to be awake, and you're going to be watchful, and you're alert watching to protect your house and your home and your family. And he says that if, you, if we knew when the master was coming, there would be no problem to stay awake. But it's when we don't know when he's coming, the challenge is so great to stay awake. Which leads us to point number two, the sudden return of Christ. He finishes off that second uh, parable by saying, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You be like those servants who stay awake for their master, or that master who stays awake to protect his home from the thief. You should be like that because you do not know when when Christ will return. It will be the hour you do not expect. Some theologians have pointed out that there are still prophecies for the end times that haven't been completed. And so there's the, there's the tendency as, as believers, to think, oh, well, there's still things that have to happen that the Bible says, so I'm not as nervous or as ready for Jesus to come. Um, they said, like, the gospel being preached to all nations, the tribulation, false Christs and false prophets arising, the sun and moon uh, being darkened and the stars falling from the sky, the appearance of the man of lawlessness. All of these things point to, it seems like it may be longer for Jesus to come back. But we need not think that for the coming of Christ, it says in this passage, will be sudden at a moment that you do not expect. Write down some of these verses, and I won't read all of them, but write down some of these. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only write down Matthew 24:42 through 44 and Luke 21:34 but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you like a trap that verse right there sounds like the last few weeks that we've listened to weighed down with the cares of the world that we don't pay attention to the spiritual things that we need to be looking for we're weighed down so much that the day of Christ comes back like a trap, so sudden. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4. For you yourselves are fully aware of the day that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, oh, there's peace and there's security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Or 2 Peter 3.10 or Revelation three three or revelation 16:15 behold i am coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed there's overwhelming testimony in scripture that the return of christ will be sudden and the command to stay awake and ready for it you will be blessed in many ways if you heed the words of scripture and you will not be naked and exposed like it says in revelation 16 you will not find Christ coming like a thief because you will be ready for him. You will be ready to open the door when he returns. I'm getting to some more practical things soon. I'm, I'm running through the, the, the passage first and then we'll look at more practical things at the end. So just hold on with me just a few more minutes and we'll get there. But first, to whom is Jesus talking? And what will it look like for those who do not heed this message? He gives us a a comparison between the blessed servant and the condemned servant in 41 through 48. 41 says this, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? You know, we know Peter as being the spokesman for the apostles. He likes to say things when either people won't say it, or he says it so quickly before they get a chance to. Um, And here he asked a question that we might be thinking ourselves, who is? is it that Jesus is talking about? Jesus, are you talking about the disciples? Are you talking about like the two weeks ago when when he spoke to somebody in the crowd? Who is he talking about? And it's interesting that Peter's the one that asks this when the parable is about falling asleep and not staying awake. Because we know Peter, later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's one of the three that Jesus says, stay awake with me and pray. And Jesus goes off to pray, and when he comes back, Peter's one of the ones that's sleeping. Can you not stay awake with me? And Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here in our passage, Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this for us or for all? He wants clarification. But when Jesus answers him, he doesn't directly give him an answer. It's kind of a roundabout conclusion. And Jesus says this, who then is the faithful and wise manager? manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time he answers who's been set in charge who's been set in charge to take care of the house and to take care of the possessions and take care of the other servants while the master's away who's the one that, that's supposed to be knowing the father's will and doing it he says that's that's who i'm talking about it's peter it's the 12 And it's anyone who acts like this. The elder, the father, the employer, the discipler, anyone who is a believer in Christ. The Lord has placed every believer in a specific place at a specific time. Elders are put in churches by God to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Saints are put in churches to complete the work of ministry. And fellow brothers and sisters are put in close proximity to to each other to encourage and exhort and edify and bear the burdens of those fellow believers. Parents are given children to raise and in the nurture and an admonition of the Lord. Paul's, so to speak, are given Timothy's to train and to disciple. And every believer is called to proclaim the gospel to all nations till Jesus returns. So in the question that Jesus gives, he answers Peter's question by saying, all believers in a roundabout way. Jesus is talking to everyone who believes in him. All believers are appointed to bear a certain responsibility in the spiritual care of others. And the servant who does that is the one who is blessed. Jesus adds another blessing here in this final passage, though. Not only is is that servant blessed because Jesus will come in and have him sit down and Jesus will serve him, but Jesus says... I will, or that master will put that servant over all of his possessions. Last week we heard um, in 1232, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is a return to, to where we started in the garden of Eden before the curse of sin. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, not not even, Adam and Eve were given the garden and God said, work the garden, be masters and rulers over all of creation. Adam gave names to all of the animals that that came before him, all of the creatures that God had made. And so this will be like a return to to that rule, that good and, and, and wonderful rule that God had given us in the first place that we've lost through the curse of sin. We will be given the kingdom of God, is what the Bible says. It's God's pleasure to do that. The fact... Of the impending second coming should therefore not cause believers, and especially the leaders, to be content with a passive waiting for his coming, but should rather inspire and challenge them to be active in imparting what is necessary to those people for whose spiritual well being they are responsible. Let me say that one more time. It's a long, phrasey sentence. The fact of the impending second coming should therefore not cause the believers and especially the leaders to be content with a passive waiting for his coming, but should rather inspire and challenge them to be active in imparting what is necessary to those people for those whose spiritual well-being they are responsible. This is to the pastor, the husband, the father, the mother, the discipler. But there's a... a a comparison here, but the unfaithful servant, it says, if that servant says to himself, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. A very big difference there very, very big difference. One commentator said that what a man says to himself is more important than what he says openly. In a lot of ways, I would, I would agree with that. In Matthew 9, 3, we see the scribes criticize Jesus in their hearts, which led to Jesus dying on the cross because they falsely accused him. Matthew nine twenty one, the woman with a discharge of blood said, if I could only touch his robe, which led her to touch the robe of Christ and be healed. Luke fifteen seventeen through 19, the prodigal son and his thought that even my master's servants eat better than this and live better than this, that led to his returning home to seek if he could even just be the servant of his father. And last week in Luke twelve seventeen through 20, we saw the, the rich man said to himself, I have all these things, I will... I will, uh, what shall I do for all my crops? And he says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night, your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? This sounds like the unfaithful servant that we have here in this passage. He says, hey, my, my master's not coming home. It doesn't look like he'll be here tonight or he'll be here in even a few days. So he starts to throw his weight around. He starts to abuse the servants and show them I'm the one put in charge. And he does not follow the, the will of his master. He carouses in food and drink instead of remaining faithful and serving and leading the others. This servant could be like those in the church who doubt the sudden return of Christ. They take for granted that Christ will return. Oh, there's always tomorrow to begin doing that which God calls me to, or there's always tomorrow to to get saved. I don't have to come today. There's always tomorrow to go witnessing to the neighbor next door or to begin the process of going on the mission field or caring for that brother or sister who's struggling. There is always tomorrow tomorrow. These are the famous last words of the worldly minded. The Bible gives us other people and groups who fell into this error of thinking. In number 16, we have the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Diotrephes in, in 3 John 9-11. The scribes and the chief priests. In church history, we have the Catholic Church. Even more recent times, we have failed pastors into adultery or larceny Or heresy. The Bible says in our passage, the Lord will assign this wicked servant a place with the unfaithful, but not until, as it says, he will cut him in pieces. This is literally divide him in two and lay the pieces with the unfaithful or unbelieving. What I want you to to know, though, is the people that that are mentioned, I do not believe all of them were believers. The Bible says with the, the, the oil and the lamps, those that were unwise, came knocking at the door and, and the, the bridegroom said, I do not know you. <clears throat> this is why they will be put with the unfaithful or the unbelieving, because they don't know Christ. It says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready, well, his, his reaction um, was pretty severe. It says he will receive a more severe beating. He has no excuse because he knew what the master had told him and still refused. The beating was severe. Being severe sounds like the master's harsh, but he wasn't harsh. The servant was negligent and rebellious and out of control. The severe beating is not harsh because the servant knew and blatantly rebelled at what the master had said. Those who had many privileges, who are often warned, who have the gospel and do not repent and believe shall be more severely punished than the others." Yet it says, but the one who did not know and did what would deserve a beating will receive a light beating. He did not know the master's expectations and did what was not acceptable. However, he should have made it his business to find out his master's will, which is why he still received a punishment. And with these two people, the the one who knew the master's will and, and did not do it, and the one who did not know the master's will and still did not do it, That sheds light on the idea that he will cut them in pieces. Because the servant knew his master's will and did not obey it. And the other servant was negligent because he did not seek it out. Ignorance is never absolute. We see this in Romans 1, 20-21. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened because they rejected who God was. Then Romans 2, 14 through 16, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, according, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. They show that the law of God is written on their hearts. So as we hear this, these, this last verse, these last two verses, this lends itself to degrees of punishment and degrees of glory. And we could spend a lot of time going through passages of scripture and talking about this. And I think that there's this this one quote here that from a man that was wiser than me, he helps bring understanding to this. He says scripture seems to indicate that there are degrees of punishment in hell, based on the findings of the tribunal of God at the resurrection. Jesus can speak in parabolic terms of being beaten with few stripes and some with many stripes, as we just heard. The difference between these punishments in the parable rests on the difference in knowledge of the master's will between the two servants. Hebrews can speak of punishment of death coming upon the disobedient, while at the same time asking how much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. All people will be judged for sin. And will face the wrath of God for such sin. If they are outside of Christ. And every unbeliever's experience of hell is worse than anything we can imagine in this life. But it would appear those with access to the light of the gospel who reject it anyway. Face as the New Hampshire confession puts it. An aggravated condemnation. Revelation brings responsibility, and greater revelation brings greater responsibility, end quote. That last point, with greater revelation, there is greater responsibility. So, as we sit here week in and week out at church, and we hear the word of God preached, and we study it when we're at home, we have a greater responsibility for the things that we have heard. God expects more of us because we know more. So the question is, the final question is, how are we to be watchful? Well, there's two ways to look at it. There's a negative look and a positive look. The negative look, we've kind of seen the last three weeks as we've heard the the sermons that Nathan has preached through 1 through 12 and 13 through 21 and 22 through uh, 34. Do not be wrapped up in the things of the world. The fool is the one who seeks the fear of man over the fear of God. The fool is the one who is greedy for gain rather than rich toward God. The fool is the one who is anxious about the things of earth rather than the the kingdom of heaven. And in the passage today, the fool was the one who knew the master's will, yet still still sought his own authority and pleasure. Being watchful means not letting the things of this world cloud your vision. There is a positive look. First Corinthians 10:31 says, "Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." There's a phrase that I've grown up hearing, and you may have heard it too, "He is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good." Have you ever heard that before? Somebody say that about somebody? Well, I actually want to disagree that that's not what this passage is talking about. Like I illustrated in the beginning, it would be like the child running to the window and staring, waiting for heaven to open up and Jesus to return. That would be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good because you're not doing what the pastor also said. Be prepared. Keep the house in preparation. But my thought is to us, be so heavenly minded that you are earthly good, that you are working and doing that which God has called you to all the while you are giving the other servants their portion at the proper time, as we saw in 1242. So I have a few people to to speak to, and in the end, it, it reaches everybody that's in here. If you're a pastor or elder, fulfill your calling. Equip the saints for the work of ministry and remain watchful. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If you're a husband, lead and love your wife and remain watchful. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in the same ways, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's Ephesians 5:25 and 28. And husbands, I'd like to ask you as I challenge myself, do you love your wife like Christ loved the church? What did Christ do for the church? He died for it. And in all, you know, manliness and strong heartedness, I'd say I'd die for my wife. But there's many days that I don't die to my own pleasures to to serve her and to help her. If you're a wife, submit to your husband as to the Lord, and remain watchful. In the same chapter of Ephesians five, twenty two through twenty-four it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. If you're a parent, Teach your children and train your children in the word of God and remain watchful. Deuteronomy 11 says this, You shall lay, therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and sh- you should bind them as a sign on your hand that they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. As a parent, there is always more opportunity for you to point your children back to Christ. Always be speaking of the word of God in your home. If you're a believer, teach what you know about Christ to others and make disciples and remain watchful. Matthew 28 is a perfect example of this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But lastly, if you're an unbeliever, repent and believe so that you can remain watchful, so that you can be watchful. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient with you, see hoping that you will come to repentance romans 5 6 through 8 for while we were still weak at the right time christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die but god shows his love for us in this that while we were still sinners christ died for us he did not die for the righteous he died for those who were lost for those who were sinners for those who were enemies of god Repent and believe and trust in Him, and you can remain watchful. And everyone in here, unless I'm mistaken, falls into one of those categories, if not all of those categories, or not all, but multiples of those categories. So think about this. Does this mean that we should not undertake long-term projects? If a scientist who is a Christian eagerly longs for Christ's return, then should he or she begin a ten year research project? Or should a Christian begin a three year course in a theological seminary or Bible college? What if Christ were return, to return the day before graduation from that institution, before there was any chance to give a significant amount of one's time to actual ministry? Certainly we should commit ourselves to long term activities. It is precisely for this reason that Jesus does not allow us to know the actual time of his return. He wants us to be engaged in obedience to him, No matter what our walk of life, up until the very moment of his return, to be ready for Christ's return is to be faithfully obeying him in the present, actively engaged in whatever work he has called us to. This is what Wayne Grudem has said. Let me repeat that last line. He says, to be ready for Christ's return is to be faithfully obeying him in the present, actively engaged in whatever work he has called us to. Do not be so worldly-minded that that you reject the word that you hear. Do not be so heavenly-minded that you do nothing for Christ besides waiting at the window for him to appear. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And one day we will be able to sing the, the hymn that we know before Christ, knowing that the world has faded away. Turn your eyes upon Jesus,